Now, the book of Ezekiel, we've already talked about and seen, is the most colorful book in the prophetic scriptures. It is the most unique in the way that God chooses to reach His people. He does very physical and visible things through the prophet Ezekiel. He has teachings, he has parables, he has poetry, he has laments. It's filled with all these different ways of trying to grab the attention of the people. And so the prophetic canvas is brilliant in its color, and this is yet another color in all of that. It's a darker color, the color of mystery. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Saying, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the way of the top of the cedar. He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs and brought it to a land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. And he also took some of the seed of the land and he planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow. Well, then it sprouted. And became a low spreading vine. And its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and yielded shoots and sent out branches. But there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and sent out its branches toward him from the beds where it was planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil beside abundant waters that it might yield branches and bear fruit and become a splendid vine. So thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will He not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers? So that all its sprouting leaves wither? And neither by great strength nor by many people can it be raised from its roots. Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it, wither on the beds where it grew? I want you to propound a riddle, he says. Speak a parable. The word riddle in the Hebrew here is an enigmatic saying, a dark saying that needs explanation. It's a mystery. It is not something that should be immediately understood, but something that when you hear it you say, huh, Two eagles. Okay, and a top of a cedar from Lebanon that is planted like a willow and then appears to turn into a vine and spread out from the one eagle to the other eagle. And what is this all about? What are you talking about, Lord? And God uses this as a teaching tool. He often uses riddles or allegory for teaching tools. Now, don't get me wrong, I do not believe the Bible is allegorical. But it is literal history. And yet, it is filled with stories and parables and allegories as well. But God always says, this is allegorical, when it's an allegory. This is metaphorical, when it's a metaphor. This is a parable, when He's just telling a story. Otherwise, we take it at face value. It is literal. And in this case, He says, Ezekiel, I want, to tell, I want you to tell this riddle. Hidah is the word. Same word is used by the the psalmist Asaph. Psalm 78, verse 1. He says, Listen, O people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings. Hidah, or in that case, hidot. It's the plural form of the word. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. But there's a difference between the Lord's use of riddles and parables and dark sayings and the way the world uses them. The world uses them to be mysterious. The world uses riddles to be tricky. 
The Lord uses riddles to explain and open out truth. He doesn't do it so that we become dull to the senses. He uses riddles to awaken faith. To bring out faith that that may be residing in us, it may be sleeping in us, and God uses these things to cause us to, to think. Like when we were driving down to California recently. And every time I get sleepy, I tell Cheryl, and, and this is how I tell her. A, that license plate. B, that road sign. C, that license plate. And we start playing the ABC game. Because we've discovered that if I get sleepy, all I need is a little mental activity and it wakes me right up. And so we see who can get through the whole alphabet by pulling out letters off of road signs. Maybe you don't do this and I'm just a little strange. But it wakes me up. And that's the idea behind these riddles. And in fact, Asaph continues in Psalm 78 verse 4 saying, We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Riddles are to awaken faith. God is not about concealing, but about revealing. And so he reveals what this riddle is all about. Riddle me this, who are the great eagles of Ezekiel 17? It's a good question. i got to give you one warning before we go any further. Some have taken great license with this prophecy. They point to the passage and they say, a great eagle, it's America. It's got to be America, right? Because the eagle is the symbol of our country, our national bird, right? Well, if Ben Franklin had had his way... Most of you know we would have had a turkey for the national bird, which I think would have been a lot of fun. You know, it's the kind of national bird you could just gobble up. You know, I don't know if that means that for Thanksgiving we'd be eating eagle. It might be a little easier to come by in these islands, but the eagle here is not a picture of America. In fact, I was talking with Ed Smeltzer. He was here this morning. Ed from Bridges for Peace. Visiting, And he said, after first service, he said, you know, I have heard Ezekiel 17 butchered so many different times. You know, it's against the law to butcher an eagle, so we're not going to do it this morning. But he, he said, I've heard it so messed up. And people love to do that. They love to take the dark sayings, the allegories, and they like to make it say what fits their religion or their belief system instead of just letting it be what it is. And I point that out, gang, because in these last days, we are called to be sons of light and sons of day, daughters as well. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.5, we are not of night nor of darkness. We are not about the secret things. We are not about the hidden mysteries. This is not a church fellowship where we gather together and it's only until you've been here a few years that you really start to find out what's going on. No, it's truth. Everything walked out in the light. Let's see it as it is. Eyes wide open. Do not be deceived. Don't be easily allured by the tantalizing, the unexplainable, the secret this, the mysterious that. Just go to Scripture for truth. Don't be lured to the weird. There's plenty of it out there in the world. Now, we're going to come to Him with faith because this is given to awaken faith. In fact, keep your finger there and turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you may say, well, if it takes faith to understand this riddle, isn't faith a mysterious thing? Faith is not mysterious. It has never been mysterious. Indiana Jones, when he sticks out his foot in the last crusade to step out blindly, hoping that he won't fall to his death, is an idiot. 
That is not an act of faith. It's a blind leap. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith, we're told, is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen, for by it men of old gained approval. You either have faith or you don't. And if you have faith, it is assurance. It's not, well, perhaps, or oh, maybe. By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Note that. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. I don't know how someone can walk out of their front door on a summer in July on Whidbey Island and not believe in the Lord God and say that this was an accident. That takes faith. It doesn't take faith to look outside and say, look at the order, the beauty, the splendor, the wonder of these things. God's hands created this. God did this. And faith informs us of that truth. By faith, verse 4, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. That is the faith of Abel. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And some might say, well, that's nuts. And I would have to agree. It's absolutely crazy that Enoch just was caught up. (laughs) Caught up, just taken out. But I believe it absolutely, by faith, in the Word of God, which has proven itself to be factually correct time and time and time again. So we know these things to be true. And verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So understand, by faith we seek explanation. By faith we go for understanding and we trust God for His answers. Now back in Ezekiel 17, get back over there, context will help as well. Because in this enigmatic prophecy of Ezekiel, the Lord explains exactly what He's talking about. He gives the riddle first. We'll walk through it. Of the eagles and the twigs and the willow and the vine. And then explains it perfectly. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. The eagle. This eagle swoops down. Well, the eagle is the symbol of America. Yes, it was also the symbol of Assyria. It was the symbol of Egypt. It was the symbol of Rome. And by the way, the symbol of Babylon. And that's what we're talking about right here. The eagle that swoops in. This first eagle is Babylon. Jeremiah 48, verse 40, gives the same comparison. The Lord says, Behold, one will fly swiftly like an eagle and spread out his wings against Moab. Jeremiah 49.22 Behold, he will mount up and swoop like an eagle and spread out his wings against Basra. And the hearts of the mighty men of Edom in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. Daniel chapter 7 verse 4 describes Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as a lion that has the wings of an eagle. Nebuchadnezzar is literally the first eagle, the personification here of Babylon. His kingdom was vast like spread wings. His kingdom was multicultural, like colorful wings. And the description is is very apt for Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But it says he came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. 
Well, Lebanon here, as verse 12 will, 12 will make absolutely clear, Lebanon is just a picture of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar sweeping down to Jerusalem to take off the top of the cedar. Why the cedar? Well, it was the cedars of Lebanon that King Hiram sent down to David that built David's palace and that built the temple. And so the cedars of Lebanon, the towering cedar, is the picture of royalty in Jerusalem. Babylon, the eagle, swoops over to Jerusalem and cuts off the top, that king. The king there is Jehoiachin. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me back up just a little bit. Look at verse 4. Lebanon speaking of Jerusalem. And verse 4 going on says, He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs and brought it to the land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. The King James Version says a city of traffic. But it's not Seattle. And it's an eagle. It's not a seahawk. So that's kind of also how we know. Where is this land of merchants? Where is this city of traders? Well, it's Babylon. Again, Babylon is portrayed here. The eagle swoops over to Jerusalem, cuts off the top cedar, and takes it back to the city of merchants, the city of traffic, Babylon. And that top of the cedar is King Jehoiachin. Historically, what happened? Nebuchadnezzar came over to Jerusalem cut off Jehoiachin, took him into captivity, 597 B.C., took him into Babylonian captivity. And after that, he set up the young twigs. And the young twigs would be the last of the kingly line of Judah. Watch this, verse 5. He took some of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters and set it like a willow. And then it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, that's toward Babylon. But its roots remained under it, So it became a vine and yielded shoots and sent out branches. Okay, so historically, here's what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar comes, takes Jehoiachin into captivity. And then, as an act of leniency and political expediency, he takes the younger brother of Jehoiachin, Mataniah, changes his name and sets him on the throne. His name would be Zedekiah. Zedekiah is now the last king of Judah. He reigns the last 11 years there in Judah. But he was set up as a vassal king by Nebuchadnezzar. They entered into a covenant agreement together. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll make you king, but you are subservient to me. Zedekiah agreed to this and becomes king in the land there in Judah, in Jerusalem. That's kind of the point of verses 5 and 6, this willow in fertile soil by abundant waters indicates peace. And this is a caveat that I think a lot of people, if you've studied something of the history of Israel, you know of the falls of Jerusalem, that sometimes we miss this. That God, and we we saw this in Jeremiah, God said to the Jewish people, if you will be subservient to Nebuchadnezzar, I will let you stay in the land. If you will uh, be under him and welcome the humility of this position... I'm going to let you stay right there in the land if you don't rebel. And so if Zedekiah and the leadership had not rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, the Jewish people would have stayed in the land and history would be a very different thing in the Middle East. But they rebelled. In fact, they began to send out like the shoots of a vine envoys to other nations. Verse 7, there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and sent out its branches toward him, that is, toward this other eagle, from the beds where it was planted, that he might water it. 
The Lord says it was planted in good soil beside abundant waters that it might yield branches and bear fruit and become a splendid vine. That's what would have happened. But, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will He not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its sprouting leaves wither? Neither by great strength nor by many people can it be raised from its roots again. Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it wither on the beds where it grew? Egypt is the second eagle. Now, Zedekiah tried to make an alliance with the Ammonites and tried to make other alliances, but Egypt was looking good. In 588 B.C., Pharaoh Hophra rises to power. And he was one of the most promising of the pharaohs of that day. He had uh, multiple horses and many men and a great army. And Zedekiah begins to look to the south to Egypt and say, you know, maybe I can strike a deal with them and overthrow this deal that I had with Nebuchadnezzar. Egypt is that eagle. So the Lord established Nebuchadnezzar as a disciplinary tool for his people, planted them there both in Judah and in Babylon to thrive and survive, but every step of the way they rebelled. Every step of the way they looked for other options, other ways to go about it. And so the Lord says the vine will wither and the vine will fail. And that's the riddle. Well... That sounds good, but how do you know the accuracy of this? Picking up in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Say, Behold, the king of Babylon, eagle number one, came to Jerusalem, Lebanon in the riddle, and took its king and princes and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him. That's Mataniah, whose name became Zedekiah. Putting him under an oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping his covenant that it might continue. But he rebelled against him. By sending his envoys to Egypt that they might give him horses and many troops, will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, Pharaoh is the second uh, second eagle, will not help him in the war, And when they cast up ramps and build siege walls to cut off many lives, now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant. And behold, he pledged his allegiance, and yet he did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will inflict on his head. I will spread my net over him, talking about Zedekiah, and he will be caught in my snare, And then I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there regarding the unfaithful act which he has committed against me. All the choice men and all his troops will fall by the sword and the survivors will be scattered to every wind and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And that's the riddle revealed. Zedekiah. Zedekiah was playing a high stakes game of survivor. Anybody still watch Survivor? I'm just curious. One person in first service watches Survivor. 
Okay, we got two. Katie, thank you for, for fessing up. Three. All right. We got like three people who are still following the multifaceted directions of the show Survivor. This would be Survivor Jerusalem. Zedekiah liked that show. It was, it's all about alliances, right? And manipulations and maneuvers. And that's what Zedekiah was doing. That's the idea. Here's the great eagle of Babylon. Here's the great eagle of Egypt. And Zedekiah is going, I want the best deal possible. And I'm going to work behind the scenes. And I'm going to attempt to survive my way. And the tragedy of this last king of Judah and the tragedy of his kingdom and the fall of Jerusalem is simply that rather than just doing things God's way, he went his own approach and he was blinded and killed in Babylon for it. Because he didn't do it God's way. If he had done it God's way, I say again, Jerusalem would have remained. Judah would have survived. The temple would not have been burned down. Nebuchadnezzar would not have raised the land as he did. If they had done it God's way. Zedekiah had a different plan in mind. And there's a a character flaw in Zedekiah, and I want you to see it. Verse 18. Now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, and behold, he pledged his allegiance, yet did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath which he despised, my covenant which he broke, I will inflict on his head. Here's the thing. God expects... I'm going to make a statement here, and I don't want you to receive it religiously. I don't want you to hear and go, well, of course. Yeah, we know that. I want you to receive it culturally. Because what I'm about to say is not how we live. God expects those who make covenants to keep covenants. And we don't. Zedekiah here had a deal. He had a peace treaty with Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord says, i got a problem with you breaking that. You were in a covenant with this king. And by the way, it was my covenant. And you broke. You violated it. You manipulated it. You maneuvered around it. You go down to Egypt surreptitiously behind Nebuchadnezzar's back thinking that that's going to be a better plan. This was my covenant, the Lord says. And you broke it. I think like Zedekiah, what happens is that we see another eagle and go, oh, that one's pretty. We're looking at the one. We get eagles all over the islands. You know, the Sharon and I saw several over the weekend. And, and we see the eagle. Oh, that's just beautiful. Oh, but look at that one. And it is a picture, gang, of being absolutely and completely spiritually ADD. If we've said before, you know, it's, that's a prettier eagle. That's a bigger eagle. That's a nicer eagle. I like that eagle. What about this eagle? And this is where Zedekiah is going. Do you ever do that? Do you ever look at your life right now and go, God's given me this eagle, but I think that's a better deal. So I'm going to do this instead of where He has me. I'm going to chase after this because where I am is not what I want. I have seen this time and time again. I have been, let me personalize this, I have been snared by this time and time again. I did it as a pastor, going from one church to the other. But I don't want this eagle, Lord. There's always a new and better way. We live in a culture of upgrades. This marriage doesn't work. I think I'll go get another. 
this business arrangement is not suiting me, so I'm going to trade up to something else. This church is not quite meeting my needs, Lord, so I'm going to find another. But unless it's of the Lord, our upgrades ultimately become downgrades. And that's what we see in Zedekiah's life. He learned the hard way. That the strongest position is being exactly where the Lord has you. I really think that we perhaps are not taking commitments and covenants seriously enough. We take them too lightly. And there's a word for it in Scripture. Double-minded. The double-minded man. That's Zedekiah. He's the double-minded man. Proverbs 18.7 says, A fool's mouth is in his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. And don't think I don't understand that proverb. Matthew 5.33, Jesus said, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And I know that too. It just happens. But let your statement be, Jesus says to you, let it be yes or no. Yes, yes. Or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. What do you mean, Jesus? Zedekiah's problem was that he was a king of mixed loyalties. He had an agreement with Nebuchadnezzar. He swore an oath to Nebuchadnezzar to be a vassal king under him. God was in that covenant. But but Zedekiah decided, maybe I can do better than what God has for me. He's the double-minded man. Psalm 119.111 David says, I've inherited your testimonies forever. They're the joy of my heart. I've inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, David says, but I love your law. Interesting contrast. The word double-minded in the Hebrew is se'ef, and it means ambivalent, divided, half-hearted. You know what it means to be half-hearted? It doesn't mean weak. It means to give only part of your heart to something. It means that you're double-minded. It means that you're not willing to, to really, well, to have faith in someone or something. Keep your finger there and turn over to the book of James in the New Testament. Right after Hebrews, James chapter 1. Because the Lord speaks about this through James, His servant. James chapter 1. I'm just going to start with verse 1. I might just read the whole book because it's all good. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who James was? Jesus' brother. He didn't say James, Jesus' brother. Right here, dude. Brother of the Lord, brother of the Messiah, brother of the King. He says, James, bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am subservient. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed about greetings, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. You know what endurance is? It's keeping going. It's staying where God has you and maintaining that. 
It is long-term obedience in the same direction. Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We've been fed a lie in the church, gang. And the lie is this. Oh, doubting's okay. Doubting's just part of the deal. Everybody has doubts. Doubting is not faith. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have all the answers to have faith. What I am saying is that we have undercut faith by speaking the language of doubts. That it's okay to have books full of questions. When Glenn Mao was teaching a couple weeks back, he, he pointed out that book, Love, well, Love Wins. Rob Bell's book. You know what my biggest problem with Rob Bell's book is? It is full of questions without answers. That's all it is. Question, 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 question. And by the time you get to the end of it, you realize he's leading you somewhere, but he's never answered any questions. And so you end up kind of like, I I don't know, that's good, but that's good too. Well, what about that? Double-minded. That's doubting. And all the worry, and all the stress, and all the freaking out that Christians do is because we have forgotten to ask in faith. You see, faith is, again, the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith is knowing. Years ago, Jim Crouch made the comment, faith is finding out what God already knows. He's already seen it. You know, God knows what's happening in your life tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, if there is a day after that, He knows. He's already seen it. And we go, oh, but I've got a plan for my future. How about asking Him? I get in the car as a small child, and we start driving up the freeway, and I start to freak out. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going to happen. How about just asking Dad where He's taking me? And that's faith. It is assurance in God the Father. Zedekiah didn't know what God was going to do. He didn't know what God knew. And if he'd had faith, even enough to know the Lord knew what he was doing, he never would have become double-minded. Constantly attracted. That that double-mindedness is constantly attracted to the new, latest, greatest thing. What is that in your life? Is, Is there something new happening for you right now? Is it more exciting than some of the old stuff you used to do, like church, Bible reading? Yeah, that was good. You know, when I was first a Christian, it was exciting and fun. But I, I got stuff going on right now. I got this new eagle just flew by, and you got, I got to check him out. Ephesians four fourteen says we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, that's mysterious. That's not the open truth that God proclaims. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Note that. He doesn't say we're taking every thought captive to Christ. That would be enough. 
He says we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means I want my thoughts to be so aligned with the Lord that even what I'm thinking is obedience. So that when my behavior follows my thinking, I'm acting in obedience because I've already been thinking in obedience to the Lord in the first place. Does that make sense? Jesus put it this way. Matthew 5.8 And here is the key to single-minded living as opposed to being double-minded. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5.8 Blessed are the pure in heart. That phrase, pure in heart, it's katharos cardia. Katharos cardia. It's where we get the word cathartic or catharsis, which means to be cleaned out. The cathartic heart. A heart that's not mixed. A heart that's not following after the latest eagle or or mixed in our messages. It is a heart that has one pure, single purpose in life and that purpose is Jesus and Jesus alone. Can you say that? Can I say that? Jesus is my reason for being. Period. And everything else is subservient to that. Everything else is a tool to point to that. That's the deal. That's why I'm here. That is what my life is about. Oh, easy for you to say, Rick, you're the pastor, you get paid to do this. No, it's not easy for me. Because just like every single one of you, I walk out the door and life hits. And things happen and I get distracted and another eagle flies by. You can be double-minded in this world and be filled with doubts and worry and stress. Or you can be single-hearted knowing your one reason for being is Jesus. And that's where the peace comes. That's where the power is. That's where the wisdom is, the understanding, the counsel, the strength, the knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. But faith needs a vision. Remember, it's the assurance of things hoped for. Faith needs something to hope for. Otherwise, it's just blind guessing. If what we're doing here as as believers in this barn, if what we're doing is simply a cultural thing, well, we're people of, of this faith, that's not really faith. But if we have a reason, and if we know where we're going, that's a completely different deal. And that's why God finishes out... Go back to Ezekiel 17 with another riddle. It is a riddle gang that puts the faith in the first one. It is a riddle, by the way, that puts the strength in our faith to know where we're headed. Listen to this. Ezekiel 17.22 I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I will bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will perform it. What's he talking about here? Gang, there's another twig. After Zedekiah. 
Zedekiah was the last of the twigs, top of the cedar, killed in captivity in Babylon, blinded prior to that. The whole thing was a shambles. Israel was gone. Judah was gone. The people in captivity wondering, what now? And God gives a vision for faith. And the vision is a revelation of Israel's Messiah, of the coming kingdom. That sprig from the lofty top of the cedar I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a a tender one and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. He is talking about Israel's coming king, Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a branch and I'm going to establish this. Listen to what the other prophets declare about the coming Christ. Isaiah 4 verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord will be glorious and beautiful and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Isaiah 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That is, this branch has to not only spring from Jesse, but come before Jesse, because he's from Jesse's roots. And he will bear fruit. Jeremiah 33, 15, In those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute judgment... And righteousness on the earth. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12. Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices of both priest and king. In Revelation 22.16, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I come before David. I come after David. I am the branch. I am the sprig. I am the one planted on the high and lofty mountain, which is Israel. I am Israel's king. That's where our faith goes. That is the, the message. That's the revelation that fulfills and informs our faith. So we're not just sitting here having Bible study because it makes us smarter. Or gathering in fellowship because we're kind of scared of the world. Or worshiping because it feels good. We are here because the very one in whom we have faith is coming back. Is establishing His righteous kingdom right here on earth. He will rule and reign, the Bible tells us, for a thousand years. And after that, He's not finished. New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, and on into eternity we go. And it is astounding, and it's where we're going. But too often, the eagles of our lives come flying in, and we begin to get, well, this is going to be my direction. That's going to be what I'm about. This defines who I am. And all the while, the Lord is saying, forget about eagles. Why don't you focus on the King? Would you keep your faith in Messiah, in Jesus Christ? Notice here it says birds of every kind will nest under it and they will nest in the shade of its branches. Some disagree with me, but for the most part, birds in the Bible are evil. Birds do a lot of evil things. You don't believe it? Go to a car wash. (laughs) Birds are most often in Scripture portrayals of evil and even sinners even evil ones even those messed up birds of every kind will nest under the branches of this great tree they will nest in the shade of its branches and speaking of the millennial kingdom and how all the nations of all the world will rest under the branches of that glorious rule 
of Jesus. And he says, all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. The trees of the field are the nations of the whole world. And Jesus talks about that. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the fig tree. Remember that? The fig tree that buds and blossoms, and when you see the fig tree blossoming, you'll know the time is near. But Luke, in talking about the same thing, describing what Jesus says, Luke says that Jesus said, when I see the fig tree and all the trees... And all the trees. Well, the trees are the nations. And you know what Jesus said happened? You know it was fulfilled? Not only Israel the fig tree in 1948, blossoming again, but all the trees. From 1948 to present day, more nations have sprung up than any time in world history. All the trees. And the Lord says, they're all going to know I'm the Lord. I'm going to bring down the high tree. Look around the world. Where are the mighty nations today? I'm bringing them down. Look around the world. The low trees, the tiny little nations that seem to be nothing. I'm going to raise them up. He says, all of the the green trees, I'm going to make dry. The dry trees, I'm going to cause to flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will perform it, says the Lord. You know what the trees are going to do when Jesus comes back? Isaiah 55.12 The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands, will applaud the coming of the Lord. It's the nation's game. Does that inform your faith a little bit? I mean, can we see that perhaps rather than chasing off after every little thing that comes along in our lives, we have something that God has called us to lock into, and that is Jesus Christ. Planted on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. What do you mean? Crucified there. And in His resurrection, bearing amazing fruit. Countless souls saved across 2,000 years. More than you can even comprehend. Multiplied millions that will be around the throne in worship of Jesus in that glorious day. We have a choice. We have a choice. There is nothing, nothing, I repeat, nothing in the world greater than knowing Jesus as King and proclaiming Him, whatever your career, whatever your life, proclaiming Him to this world. Are you double-minded? Or are you single-hearted? Is your purpose for being, can you truly and honestly say, my whole purpose for being is to serve the Lord, a bondservant like James of Jesus Christ? I think a lot of us function most of the time in survival mode, playing the manipulations of the world, trying to make it work, twisted and tossed here and there, the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But there is stability, there is strength, there is single-heartedness in Jesus Christ. Let's stand up together. I want to read to you from the second psalm. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. This is Jesus talking to the Father. Ask of Me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware, and truly Jesus will. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And I am praying, Father, for Your grace over the Bridge Fellowship that You will pour out among us an anointing such that our lives would be single-hearted. Every one of us. That we're talking about Jesus. That we're focused on Jesus. That we're thinking about. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. And that we will not be among those who are tossed here and there by all these doctrines and all these ideas and all these new things coming down the pike. But we would be stayed in the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That you will give us a single-hearted faith. Bring us back to that pure trust in you. We want to see you, Lord. So make us pure in heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.